Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. News continues. I'll hand over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? It's not New Year's without Anderson and Andy. Everybody <laughs> knows that. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. We saw something in the Rittenhouse murder trial in Wisconsin that you don't see very often inside a courtroom. A defendant seating the jury who will decide their fate. Kyle Rittenhouse had a raffle drum placed in front of him. It was like some bingo or lottery or something like that. And he pulled out slips of paper at random to whittle down the jury panel from 18 to 12. Right? You get six alternates on standby just in case. The jury, obviously, 12. The final makeup, five men, seven women, 11 white, one person of color. Day one now of their deliberations has ended. And there is no answer to whether they find the defendant guilty of murder and attempted murder or whether the defendant convinced them that he reasonably believed he was facing imminent serious injury or death that night and was therefore justified in using deadly force at a Black Lives Matter protest turned ugly in August of 2020. The prosecution's argument, this defendant was a 17-year-old Yahoo who came looking to start trouble, armed, actually provoked the people who wound up chasing him. When the defendant provokes the incident, he loses the right to self-defense. You cannot claim self-defense against a danger you create. Will the jury believe that? Now, let's say they don't. Even if the jury determines Rittenhouse did not provoke the first fatal shooting, they still must go through a very significant and specific analysis. Did he act reasonably, shooting and killing two unarmed men and injuring a third badly who came at him armed, saying he believed the defendant to be an active shooter? Defense counsel had no pity for the dead, actually saying he is glad the defendant killed. Kyle shot Joseph Rosenbaum to stop a threat to his person. And I'm glad he shot him because if Joseph Rosenbaum had got that gun, I don't for a minute believe he wouldn't have used it against somebody else. What a thing to say. But did it resonate with the jury? Just one of them to bolster that self-defense argument. Is Rittenhouse a victim or a vigilante here? How hard is this case for the jury? 30-something pages of instructions, all these political overtones. We've got great guests for you. One, very rare. Let's ask somebody these questions who just did their duty of service in a jury in a case against the police, Officer Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd. We're going to welcome Brandon Mitchell tonight. And we're going to answer the key legal questions with Mark O'Mara. You know him. He defended George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin case. It's great to have you both. Brandon, thank you very much for joining us tonight. So take us inside the room for your experience. Everybody's aware. Everyone's watching. This is heavy. 
There is a lot of political overtones. There's a huge set of instructions. One day in, what was it like in that room? I think the first day is always just about um, all the jurors just getting their thoughts out. They've held all this information in for the entire trial. They haven't been able to talk about it or tell anybody about it. Now it's finally their chance to go over the, key, the, point, the points that they thought were key, the evidence that they thought was key, and to just get all their thoughts out. So I'm pretty sure they spent most of today just going over what they thought of all the evidence, what they thought of, of Rittenhouse taking the stand, and what they thought of, of each, the defense and the prosecution's case. So that takes um, that long to hear kind of everybody vent where they are and where they're not. And then... Uh, do you remember with your situation, the instructions, were the instructions an issue? Um, the, the instructions are tough a little bit. Um, I think with the with our case, with Chauvin case, um, the judge did a great job of, of telling us what to follow and how to follow it. Um, their instructions for this Rittenhouse case is a lot more in depth. There's a lot more charges. Um, the language is a little bit different. I think that might be a hiccup for them. I think it's going to take them some time to go over it and really come to a conclusive idea of what it is they're being asked because there's just so much more information. But that's definitely a discussion in itself is how to interpret each one of these counts of whatever that they're, they're going for. How hard is it for regular people to put themselves into a situation of figuring out whether it was okay to kill someone? Uh, in Wisconsin, the specific law at play is you have to say, well, not would Brandon do it or would Chris do it, but was it reasonable for this 17-year-old to do it? How hard is that for regular people? I think it's extremely difficult just because it's not, it's not, the, it's not a normal thing. It's not something your average person is just going to do on a day-to-day basis. Um, they have to think about it, about the situation, the scenario, uh, the, the mindset. There's so much to think about. And to break it down as the average person is, is uh, it's a tough task. It's a really tough task. And that's why it takes 12 jurors to kind of talk about it and come to a, conclus- a conclusion amongst each other. Because if it's just one person, you know, everybody has different biases and different thoughts and different views on everything in life. Um, but together, they can come together with, with the right choice. Uh, Mark O'Mara, do you think that Rittenhouse, being on the stand, gave at least one juror reasonable belief that, This kid was scared and he had the gun and they were going to try to kill him. And it made sense that he did what he did. I think he did a good job of presenting his case. Uh, The crying, I thought, was pretense myself, but I think it came across pretty well to the jury. And again, in a self-defense case, Chris, as you know well, you have to almost put the defendant on the stand because he or she is the one who's got to say, I acted reasonably and I was afraid and I was in fear of great bodily injury that was imminent. All those catchphrases that really can't come from the evidence in most cases and have to come from this witness. And I tell you, at at 18, a young witness, I thought he did a pretty good job of presenting his case and was very well prepared and coached. Are you surprised that in a jury with these kinds of political overtones that they didn't sequester the jury? And what difference could that make? I think we are now in the day and age that any jury particularly in a case of any magnitude like this, any publicity that's out there, has to be sequestered. It's, just, it's an inconvenience, but this system has to be, a, be trusted. And here's the problem. Chris, back when I started, it was the newspaper, right? Stay away from the newspaper. Now, social media and the Internet just invades every moment of our life. And I'm very afraid that these jurors, intentionally or not, were infected by non-relevant information that got to them from a buddy, a friend, a tweet, 
a Facebook page, anything that they may have looked at to pass their time since they're so used to it. And it could really in, invade the jury and really undermine the verdict. Brandon, what was your experience with people bringing things into the room from outside? Not, not physically, um, I mean ideas. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, for us, we took it pretty seriously. I mean, we pretty much stayed away from the media as we were supposed to and away from social media as much as possible. But, but like he just said, I mean, people do have habits of, you know, checking their, their Instagram or their Facebook or whatever. Um, but I, with, our, with the Derek Chauvin case, we took it serious to just not check those things as much as possible because it'd be too easy to bring something in from the outside. Um, so we actually, when we went into the break, we didn't, we didn't bring any of that in. And how does it work uh, in your experience in that jury, Brandon, with when people, because, you know, these are very, these are hot button issues, right? Are you pro-police? Are you anti-police? You know, what you thought of George Floyd in your case. It's going to be a similar analysis here, you know, why this kid went there, you know, what it was about for him um, and the people who were there helping out in the protest. How does it work in terms of people voicing those opinions even if they don't really go along with the facts and law in the case? Like, what was the vibe like in your room and dealing with those types of things? I think you can feel the energy that somebody's given based on um, the reasoning as they're going through why they think um, he should be guilty or not guilty. As they're going through the reasoning, you'll try to get a vibe and the energy that they're giving off as to what their political beliefs may be or whichever side of the fence you may say that they're on, um, just by how passionate they are um, within describing certain parts of the evidence and certain parts of the testimony, um, you'll 100% get the vibe and you'll feel the energy and you'll understand um, where, where they are with that. Did you have any holdouts? Even if they don't say it directly. What was that? Did you have any holdouts? Like somebody who was, you know, one or two people who are, you know, separate from everybody else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we definitely had um, a couple people that were, um, they had different viewpoints for, for a period of time. And as they were, as those viewpoints were voiced, um, we had to think of different ways to describe the scenario and different ways to go over the evidence um, to get everybody on the same page. So that's where the discussion really comes in, is if you have somebody with an opposing view um, and you're, you're kind of going over the evidence again, you're going over the testimonies again, and you're breaking them down in different ways, in different formats, um, to help this person understand in a different, in a different manner. Brendan, would this be an easy decision for you, this case? This one is, is a tough one just because there are a lot more nuances. Um, I think with the Chauvin case, the prosecution did a really great job with this case. It's, it, they didn't, I don't think they did as good as a job as the, as the Chauvin prosecutors. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot more to go over. I think there's going to be more conversations that are a little bit combative within their liberation room. But I do think that they're going to come out with the right decision. What do you think that decision is? I think the decision, I think he's, I think he's guilty for, for sure, first-degree intentional murder. Um, I th- and I think that's what they'll come to after going over everything. You think he provoked the situation? Absolutely. Hmm. Mark O'Mara, you're shaking your head. You think that this jury, at least one of them, can find that they don't believe that? They're going to have a very tough time convicting a 17-year-old at the time of the event for what he seemed to be doing, he definitely he put himself in a bad situation. The provocation is a lot more difficult to argue in this case than you might argue in an uh, uh, Ahmaud Arbery case or something like right. that. Right. I think they may come back and argue or, or give him a lesser included, 
So I either see a lesser included, or we might, I hope not, but we might see a hung jury because it is so divisive and it really is polarizing as to whether or not using a gun in that set of circumstances was justified because somebody was coming at you or you're not supposed to bring a gun to a fist fight. And that's going to be the argument. Mm-hmm. Mark O'Mara, thank you very much. Hey, Brandon Mitchell, I got to tell you something. Uh, this was really yeah. helpful. Thank you for doing your duty, obviously, in your trial. And thank you for explaining that process to us here tonight. Appreciate you. Be well. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right, we got another big trial nearing an end. The defense is about to make its closing arguments for the three white men charged with murdering Ahmaud Arbery, the black man jogging where they live, remember? Now, one of the most important moments in terms of all the feelings surrounding it came today, but few caught it. I'll show it to you with a great legal mind. There he is. Come on in. Next. Day eight in the trial of three white men charged with murdering Ahmad Arbery. Prosecution rested its case. I said in the tease uh, that it's closings. No, I got it wrong. Uh, the prosecution rests the case. Now the defense has the option. Do you want to put on a case in chief? You don't have to. They say yes. Now, there's a lot going on in this trial that doesn't have to do with just the facts and the law, right? Obviously, there are racial overtones here. And there is a moment that must be called out, but not the one that you're thinking of. Kevin Guff is the one you're thinking of, the attorney for one of the defendants who renewed his efforts today to limit the presence of black pastors in the courtroom, like the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who sat alongside Aubrey's mother. It's not the first time he picked this fight. Now, I know you've heard many criticize him and you've seen lots of civil rights activists saying how wrong this is. Listen. If we're going to start a precedent starting yesterday, we're going to bring high profile members of the African-American community into the courtroom to sit with the family during the trial in the presence of the jury. I believe that's intimidating and it's an attempt to pressure could be consciously or unconsciously an attempt to to pressure or influence the jury. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family trying to influence the jury in this case. If a bunch of folks came in here dressed like Colonel Sanders with white masks sitting in the back. Now, that's the moment that everybody's playing that stood out. This guy doesn't know the difference between Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson. Black pastors, not, not pastors, but black pastors, like that's a thing. But that's not what stood out to me. Did you hear how the judge responded? He didn't just deny the request. Listen to this. What we have now with individual members uh, or individuals coming into the courtroom, I will say that is directly in response, Mr. Goff, to statements you made, which I find reprehensible. Uh, these the Colonel Sanders statement you made last week, I would suggest maybe something that has influenced what is going on here. You need to understand, everybody, that your words in this courtroom have an impact on a lot of what's going on. I'm not granting a mistrial at this point based on these arguments that are being made. That moment should be getting way more attention. Why? Look, we're not wrongly fixated on what is wrong. But when you go all in on the outrage, you may miss a remedy that's right in front of you. The minority population and their allies must complain about injustice and prejudice. But who creates the change? The majority. 
That's who will create the change that we need. So why not focus on what was right here? That judge lampooned this lawyer for his ugly exclusion of black pastors. The Colonel Sanders comment, as part of this absurd request, is using it as a caricature of a Southerner behind the times. This judge is proof of how change happens. He mocked it. Not only are you wrong on the law, but you're just plain wrong. That's how you change culture. You change mores. And if we reward what is done right, you'll see. You won't have to shout so loudly about what is wrong. Now, I want to bring in CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson. Always good to see you. Pleasure's mine, Chris. Now, we know what he's doing, this defense attorney. It's just stupid for him to be doing it because since when is it new to have supporters of a victim's family coming into a courtroom? It's not new at all, but it's so troubling to hear statements like that. It reminds you of why we're really in that trial to begin with, right? We talk about a person who's running down the street and this is what occurs. And it's part of a larger mindset. What makes you think that's okay? Look, you're a person who studies the law. You're an attorney and you're therefore an educated person, but it's more than that. We know courtrooms are public accommodations. We know courtrooms are come one, come all. We know courtrooms are about the rights of an individual to have a public and a fair trial. And so you're saying and minimizing and otherwise suggesting that there are certain people that should be excluded from that, but we know something else. We know that jurors are given specific instructions, and what are they? You focus that case on the evidence before you. I don't care about who's sobbing in the gallery. I don't care who comes into the gallery. I don't care what's written in the press. I don't care what people tweet. I don't care what they put on Facebook. If you are sworn to be a juror, we know that you evaluate the case based on what you hear and see. And so for an attorney to be saying something like that and meaning it, and let's remember, you showed that clip from then. He renewed Mm -hmm. today the same notion that, you know what, we deserve a mistrial because of the influence that people have. No, I respect jurors more than that. I do not respect any person who is a member at bar or otherwise who would engage in statements like that. No place for it. The fact that it's happening now is a disgrace. Now, they're going to put on a case and it's going to be self-defense and it's going to be, listen, We wanted to stop this guy. We wanted to talk to him. He turned and came at me, Mm -hmm. and he grabbed the gun, and now it's no longer my gun. It's the gun, and I had to defend myself. How compelling on the facts? Well, if you get there, all right, the prosecution has done a very good job at potentially not letting them get there. What do I mean, Chris? I mean this. In order for you to avail yourself of self-defense, you have to now get the benefit of that citizen's arrest law. That's why at the beginning of the trial, the judge instructed the jury on burglary, for example, burglary with intent to steal, criminal trespass. Why? Because the jury has to conclude that a crime was committed in their presence, right, the three defendants, or that they had immediate knowledge of a crime. Goes a step further. Not only as to the crime, it has to be a felony to implicate you chasing and detaining them. So before the jury could get to, we're not there yet, we know that the defense will put on a case if they choose and there'll be closing arguments. But if we get to that point, the jury before they get to argue self-defense, they have to get to the hurdle where the jurors are convinced 
that they otherwise were entitled to engage and interact with Ahmad Arbery. That's why they can't argue traditional uh, or perfect self-defense like in the Rittenhouse case. Correct. Because they provoked this situation clearly. That's absolutely right. And then in addition to that, now you have the whole initial aggressor issue too. So the defense has a lot of hurdles. Now, if they get to what you asked me, now potentially you can have an argument if you're the defense that it could have been the collective gun. Right. But before you get to that argument of was it self-defense, was I in immediate fear? Did I act proportionally to the threat posed? Were my actions reasonable? Got to get to the citizen's arrest law and you got to get past the initial aggressor doctrine. Let's see what the jury allows. They may not let them get there. We'll see. Very understandable. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. Joey Jackson. All right. We got big political news. A very familiar name, I think, is now trying to become Texas's next Governor, former presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke is here, fresh off his announcement. He's going to try to unseat Republican Greg Abbott, a Democrat in a deep red state. He has fought this fight before. What makes it different this time? There he is with his peeps. Next. Beto O'Rourke is running for governor of Texas. You know him. Ran for Senate against Ted Cruz three years ago. Came very close to winning. He had Democrats dreaming of a purple Lone Star state. I don't think they've won statewide in Texas, I think, since Ann Richards in 1990. Then he ran for president two years ago. Now he's launching his third big campaign in as many years, mounting a challenge to Republican Governor Greg Abbott. He's starting out nine points behind the governor in the most recent poll. But what does the poll mean right now? He just got in the race. So let's bring in Beto O'Rourke to talk about why he can do it. Beto O'Rourke, thank you very much. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, The good news for you, Governor Abbott sliding in approval ratings. Put them up for the audience because I want to ask you why you think this is. Uh, 52-28 approved, disapproved. Now 43-48. He's now what we call in politics upside down. Why do you believe that is? And what does that mean for you? Chris, it's because the people of Texas, like those that I'm with tonight in Laredo, want us to get focused on the big things that we can do together, like creating great jobs, ensuring we have world-class public schools, and then making progress on common sense things that we agree on, like expanding Medicaid so more people can see a doctor. Instead of that, Greg Abbott has failed the people of Texas Literally, the power grid in the energy capital of North America failed the people of this state in February. Millions were without power, and hundreds, including an 11-year-old boy, died. He died in his sleep because Greg Abbott could not guarantee the most basic level of government for the people of Texas. When you add to that the 72,000 who have lost their lives in his incompetent response to the COVID crisis and the fact that he would not allow local schools to require masks in the classroom, and as of September, this state led the country in childhood COVID deaths, then you understand why the people of Texas want to change. They want confidence in their government. They want us to get back to the big things that bring us together. And this extremist, divisive politics of Greg Abbott, we want to put it behind us and get back to the future, the future that Texas should own. So how do you deal with the Texas voter who says, you know what, Beto, you're a nice guy, but you're on the wrong team. You Democrats are crazy. And that's why in 2020, Democrats had big losses in Hispanic Texas regions because the party's out of step with the people of Texas. Texas has gotten more red, not less. How do you deal with that? 
I think when we see each other exclusively as Democrats or Republicans, or define each other by our ethnicity or race, when we focus on the things that divide us, we're never going to make progress. We're never going to win elections. But when we instead see ourselves as Texans first and foremost, and focus on the things that the people of Texas want, like making sure that in our classrooms, kids are getting a world-class education. They want that. And right now what we see is that seven out of 10 kids in a fourth grade classroom cannot even read at grade level in the state of Texas. It might help if we paid teachers in this state a real living wage so that they don't work a second or a third job and so they can focus on their most important job, unlocking that lifelong love of learning in that child before them. That's not a Republican issue. That's not a Democratic issue. That is a Texas value. And the folks in this state want us to get back to focusing on just those things. So that's how we bring people together. That's how we win. And Chris, it is the only way I could hope to serve everyone in this state is by bringing people together. And so that's why I'm here in Laredo tonight, together with some great people who are going to help us to win this thing. How do you avoid what happened in Virginia, where uh, the Republican made the case that, oh, I'll talk education, uh, and the kids have to read, but it's about what they read also. And these Democrats want to teach them that if you're white, you're a problem, and that you have to apologize for everything that's happened, and they're going to judge your kids. It worked in Virginia on that issue of education. How do you stop that from happening in Texas? Because Abbott's on the same page. First thing that we need to make clear is we want every parent involved in their child's education. My wife Amy and I are really involved in our high school son, our middle school daughter, and our elementary school son's education, meeting with teachers, showing up at school board meetings. I expect that of every Texan. That produces a better education for those kids in our classrooms, and it's another way of supporting those teachers who have the most important job that I can think of. But we also need to make sure that we're focused on the outcomes and the results. I mentioned what's going on in those fourth grade classrooms right now. We also have a real challenge in graduation rates and the ability to get a post-secondary degree or certification, apprenticeship, or bachelor's degree. Those are the things that help you to earn more in your life, to do better, and to give back more to the state of Texas. All of us as parents want that to happen. So let's bring all these parents together on those issues. Let's get past the culture war stuff and the divisive issues and get back to the basics, uh, reading, math, making sure that we're good to one another and looking out for each other. That's the Texas way. When, when the power grid failed and those in power failed all of us, we put our differences behind us, got together, and helped one another out. That's how we came through that crisis. That's how we'll meet these challenges before us. I have a, a lot of confidence in this state, very proud of Texas. I know that we can do it. Well, one thing's for sure. You guys came through the crisis, but you didn't fix the problem. Uh, so there's definitely work to be done down there. Beto O'Rourke, good luck. Appreciate you coming on primetime. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate right. it. Got those people with him. A vote is coming tomorrow in the House to censure Republican Paul Gozer. Why? Because he posted that anime murder fantasy video depicting himself killing one of his colleagues, swinging swords at President Biden. Is that really just a joke? It's the only way this guy seems to like to joke. He's constantly threatening people in the other party. Now, the question is, what should the consequence be, if anything? Should he be stripped of a committee assignment? Let's take it to someone on his side of the aisle who would I would argue that Congressman Reed, he's in more trouble with his party for doing the right thing 
than Gozer is for doing the wrong thing. How is that possible? Next. Is the only rule in the GOP these days hate Dems or else? Why are their members being threatened just for voting to improve roads and bridges? Meanwhile, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon creep, you creep, is just shrugging, shrugging, shrugs her shoulders. Yeah, I put a target on their back. So what? Nobody says anything to her in the party. Congressman Tom Emmer says it's the price of politics. Quote, unfortunately, in the world we're in right now, we all get death threats, no matter what the issue is. Is that really just okay now? It's hard to find anyone with an R next to their name who will call out Paul Gozer for the threatening tweet that's about to get him censured tomorrow. What's going on? My next guest is one of those Republicans who voted to invest in his own district because his voters and constituents want him to. Congressman Tom Reed, thank you. It's good to be with you, Chris. Thank you. What does it mean to you that you've got more trouble in-house than somebody who's like putting up stupid cartoons, cutting off Democrats' heads and going at the president with swords. Well, obviously, uh, my vote for infrastructure uh, was something that part of my party uh, rejected and uh, did not agree with. But I'm proud of that vote because I believe I was doing the best interests of our district, of our state, and of our country. And at, uh, at the same time, uh, I recognize that people are going to not agree with that. But at the end of the day, I'm going to do what's right Uh, for the people of our district and of our state and make the call as I see it, as I'm representative of them, not of people in Washington, D.C. What do you think is driving the people who are coming after you with all the ugly threats? You know, I think there's uh, a lot of misinformation. I think there's uh, uh, this thought process in Washington, D.C. and politics today that to motivate uh, folks, you got to scare them. You have to instill fear. fear. Uh, I'm of a different mindset. I, I believe leadership means you govern. You have to get to yes to get things done for the American people. It's easy to vote no when it's very difficult to vote yes in this environment. And so I encourage my colleagues, you know what? It's time. Our problems in America are so large that we need to solve problems rather than engage in partisan politics 24-7. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the animus uh, there uh, in the country today. Engage my cynicism. Uh, As someone who grew up in politics, I look at your situation. I know you. We've talked a number of times. Um, Why do you keep doing this right now? They're they're doing ugly things to your kids. Uh, They're constantly sending, they're throwing bricks through the windows of your office. I mean, is it worth it? Uh, You know, I still believe in the institution of Congress. I still believe in America. And it is worth it. It it is worth it to roll up the sleeves and get something done uh, for the American people like yesterday. I went to the White House, stood on the lawn. Uh, with my colleagues on the Democratic side and said, look, at, I'm going to try to send the message to those back home and to those uh, young men and women in particular that Congress can still work. And we have those moments still just as recently as 24 hour, hours ago. And so I'm going to continue to try to inspire leaders to step forward and say, you know what, do what's right and the, and the right politics will take care of itself. But isn't it just a one-off, the infrastructure bill and your party is resolutely against working with Democrats? I mean, literally opposition is their position. I mean, isn't your party going in the opposite direction of what you're saying you should be doing? And I'm trying to influence uh, the party from within uh, as best as I can. But I've also watched in the Democratic Party, Chris, with all due respect to my colleagues on the other side. Uh, There's this mindset in the Democratic Party that you can't work with Republicans, that they are the enemy uh, of uh, the state. 
And uh, that has to end on both sides. And so I, I'm not going to point fingers at our side, and, and I'm not going to point fingers at the other side in regards to those members that are willing to set aside that extremism that is influencing both sides of the aisle. Within your own party, what does it mean to you that there is either not much being said or there's some protection, subtle or not uh, protection, given to Paul Gozer, um, but guys like you have a target on their back? I mean, I, I understand it. It's frustrating. Uh, and I just try to express uh, how I feel about it with my colleagues. I deal with it uh, as I do with anything in my family in regards to the, you know, I'm the youngest of 12 and how best we've handled our differences, how best we handle our criticism of, of those in our family is to go to them, look them in the eye and say, really, is this what you want to do uh, as an example, not only for the family, but also for, this, for the nation and, and the state. And I, I think that resonates better. And I would encourage all members of Congress, do that. Stand up, go talk to them, eyeball to eyeball, and look them in the eye and say, you know what, we can do better than this as members of Congress. And that's what I've done. So if you've done that, how are you going to vote on the censure motion? You know, I appreciated Paul accepting responsibility for it in front of the conference, got up in front of the conference today and uh, condemned uh, violence, uh, recognized his mistake in regards to this video uh, being put together and sent out. And uh, my hope is, is he reaffirms that tomorrow. And uh, if he does that, then I'm willing to give uh, my fellow colleague an opportunity to reconcile himself. What if he doesn't show? You know, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but right now, where I'm at with it is I've talked to Paul. I've expressed uh, how I feel. And uh, he did express it to the conference. And I give him credit uh, for doing that. And my, my also point on this is, you know, as Democrats try to claim the, the item of self-righteousness on this issue, be careful really who you're pointing the finger at. Because there's three fingers always pointing back at you. And so this is, a, this is a pox on all of our houses. And we must stand up in, in regards to our individual families to deal with these issues. Congressman Tom Reed, appreciate you being on the show. Chris, it's always good to be with you. Thank you so much. All right, stay safe. More subpoenas may be coming this week from the January 6th committee. And as the panel weighs how to handle Mark Meadows' noncompliance, the lawyer for Steve Bannon, who's charged with contempt of Congress, comes to CNN and makes a wild case for Bannon's innocence. My next guest calls it a layer cake of BS and is about to deconstruct it. Do you deconstruct a layer cake? We will next. The Steve Bannon case matters because there are a lot of Trumpers trying to decide if they'll follow his lead, be a martyr, get a platform, chief among them, the former president's chief of staff. During the insurrection, Mark Meadows, he was all over the place trying to spread stink The January 6th committee is still trying to determine what to do about his refusal to testify. He and his lawyers are following the Bannon case. I promise you that. They're going to wait to see whether these arguments hold up in court. Bannon's lawyer, David Schoen, was supposed to be on this show tonight to make that case directly to you. He bailed. But we got a sample of his offerings on New Day this morning. So we'll take you through it. Uh, Let's take his case and give someone a chance to counter it. How about Norm Eisen? Welcome back. Good to have you. Thanks for having me back, Chris. Now, there, there's a main assumption uh, in Bannon's argument, which is this. A letter from the former president's lawyer to his lawyers saying they intend to assert privilege and not to testify is enough. Is it enough in form, first of all, meaning to them and not to the committee, and in substance? 
Uh, Chris, uh, the letter is not enough. Um, Bannon had an obligation to do what we see the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, doing. You have to negotiate. You can't just rely on a paper by fiat. Bannon is not the judge in his own case. And Chris, you have to show up and take the questions one by one, like Jeffrey Clark, the coup lawyer from the Justice Department did. He refused to answer him, but at least he showed up. And Chris, the letter has to make some sense. Bannon wasn't a member of the executive, so executive privilege, which bars uh, uh, information from being shared, can't apply to him. Many of the subject matters were about his podcast or his conversations with people who are not in the government. The whole thing is a lot of nonsense that Schoen was peddling on New Day this morning. Why didn't Congress litigate the issue with Trump, get it out of the way, and then there is no good faith argument among any of the people they subpoena about whether or not they can come. Chris, time is of the essence. We know that what President, uh, ex-President Trump wants is to tie Congress up in litigation knots, to lose a series of battles but win the war. We saw that in the litigation that we mounted against him as part of the first impeachment. On garbage privilege claims like this, there's no obligation to go to court. This is a subpoena. If you or I did not answer this subpoena, we would be in the same boat. If we were subpoenaed to court and we didn't show up, they'd send a marshal out for us. You can't defy the law this way. Congress has no obligation to go to court. Bannon should have shown up. How do you prove if you're Merrick Garland and co, et al, as we say in Latin, um, how do you prove the mens rea element of the statute that he willfully disobeyed uh, the congressional subpoena? If he says, listen, I got this letter from the former president saying don't do it. I'm not willfully disobeying. I have to take this under advisement. Um, Well, uh, you, you look at whether there's reason to believe that that's a lie. And in Bannon's case, we know that that is not a good faith argument because it makes no sense for him to be able to assert executive privilege. The guy's a podcaster. Is there going to be a podcast privilege now? Chris, if I didn't want to talk about a conversation we had to get ready for the show, am I going to be able to assert the guest privilege? There's no such thing. So you can't claim uh, something when it's so ludicrous. And More evidence of willfulness outside uh, of the FBI yesterday when he surrendered himself. He said, we're taking down the Biden regime. Okay, that is his state of mind, not compliance, not good faith, defiance, not compliance, Chris. That won't cut it. He acted willfully. Defiance, not compliance. When it rhymes, it's cogent. Norm Eisen, thank you very much. Appreciate you making the case. Thanks, Chris. All right, we'll be right back with the handoff. Hey, don't forget, tomorrow night we have a special conversation with Bill Maher. He's here for the whole hour. He talks about his warning of a slow-moving coup to help Donald Trump, the state of play with our politics in this country, what he thinks the left is doing wrong, and the wokeness debate. That and much more with a smart man, Bill Maher, tomorrow on Primetime. 
Thank you very much. I want to get you now to the big show, Don Lemon tonight with its big star, Dean Lemon, monitoring all that's going on in these massive cases in our midst. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.